0: Hello, and welcome to the Middle East Weekly, a podcast from the Journal of Middle Eastern Politics and Policy at Harvard. This week, we're joined by Mohammed Saleh, Anna Boots, Andrew McKindo, Nick Norberg, and myself, Blair Big. We'll be focusing the bulk of this episode on the events that occurred in Gaza this past weekend, when the Israeli Defense Forces killed 18 people and injured nearly 1,000 others in reaction to Palestinian demonstrations near the border fence, which separates Gaza from Israel. The Palestinian protests began on the anniversary of Land Day, and were to be the beginning of a six-week-long campaign called the Great Return March, raising awareness about the Palestinians' rights to return to their homes that they were displaced from in Israel in 1948. At the end of the podcast, we'll also provide some brief updates on the deal that Netanyahu made and then abruptly canceled this week regarding the status of African migrants in Israel. I'll turn it over to Andrew first to provide some background on the protests that happened this weekend in Gaza and the IDF's reaction.
1: Last Friday was the opening day of this six-week-long Land March campaign. Uh, And it started in the Gaza Strip on five locations along the border fence between um, the Gaza Strip and Israel. And at these locations, uh, masses of Palestinian civilians were demonstrating at a substantial distance from the wall and there were perhaps twenty to thirty thousand demonstrators, and the majority of them had set themselves up in camps, which were uh, about three to five hundred metres back from the wall, so so quite a long way from from this border wall, this heavily fortified border wall. And now the Israeli military had declared a three hundred metre exclusion zone on the Gaza side of the of the border. Most protesters did stay outside this. Now there were some who did come inside this, and these were primarily young men, uh, primarily, in fact, almost certainly predominantly unarmed. Um, now, the Israeli military says that some of these young men started to throw stones, were throwing Molotov of cocktails, were rolling burning tires towards the fence. It's pretty unclear the actual extent of these activities if they were happening because there's very little video footage showing these kind of activities. Um, there are some videos showing people rolling tires towards the fence, for example. But nothing that suggests a sort of large-scale concerted effort to attack Israeli positions or to breach the border fence, which is what the Israeli Defence Force uh, said that many of these protesters were doing. Now, Israeli soldiers opened fire on many groups of these Palestinians, and as, as we've said, killed 18 of them. Now, they say that some of these protesters whom they killed had weapons, had firearms, and... As I've said there was absolutely no evidence that this was the case. In fact there's a lot of video evidence to show that many of these protesters were completely unarmed, in some cases moving away from the border when they were shot in the back, or standing clearly unarmed with their hands in the air. Uh, one man was praying as he was shot. Um, so there's a very large discrepancy between what the video evidence we have available seems to show and what the what the IDF says happened. And from there uh, this event has sort of gained um, traction in the international media, both coverage of it as an atrocity that uh, that led to the death of many unarmed civilians, uh, but also, as we'll talk about shortly, coverage that treats it more as a uh, as a clash or a, a sort of an armed confrontation in which the death of these protesters um, somehow seems more justified. So now we're going to talk a bit more about that media coverage and the the uh, upsides and downsides of what's been said about this event so far?
2: Yeah, um, there was a pretty obvious trend coming out of the American media immediately following um, the death of these, the killing of these 18 Palestinians on Friday, that American mainstream news outlets refer to it as, um, and like Andrew mentioned, with words like clashes or confrontations and words that indicate that there were two armed sides to this conflict um, I also noticed the word, um, words like volatile area used to describe the Gaza Strip in general. And all of these vocabulary words kind of work together to suggest that this is just an inherently violent place where people are always fighting and that when people die there, it's due to an unfortunate conflict between both sides and not due to Israeli, the Israeli military killing Palestinian.
3: And that both sides are equally well equipped and that they are on uh, equal footing, so that if uh, w- regardless of which side suffers losses, um, it is treated as a, a necessary uh, not n- not necessary but expected uh, and typical conflict and not as an oppressive colonial regime yeah exactly uh, punishing the oppressed or the people whom they oppress
2: yeah exactly it 's treated words like that suggest that Palestinians have. Um, the same ability to resist the Israeli occupation that the Israelis have in their military force that they can use against Gazan citizens. And so um, they're really misleading, and it really um, takes the blame away from the Israeli military for killing these unarmed civilians. So it's a really problematic portrayal of of the events in the American media that can be really misleading for people and suggest that um, like Mohammed said, that it's an equal, um, an equal match when in reality it's anything but. And this is, of course, part of a long tradition of the coverage of the occupation in the American media, and we can all talk more about this and highlight some examples of the way that the, the issue, the way that the Israeli occupation of Palestine is portrayed in the American media, and this has a really long history. Um, it's encouraging to see that there are more independent news outlets now, like MondoVice or Electronic Intifada, that provide more balanced coverage or f- coverage from the Palestinian side that doesn't usually get highlighted in the American mainstream media. And there are some other journalists and news outlets that have been bucking this trend, which has been encouraging to see.
0: Yeah, I I found in general that I prefer reading U.K. sources to U.S. sources a lot of times in this conflict, and there are still a lot of U.K. sources that do have bias in the way they cover it, but I thought The Guardian did a lot of good reporting on this most recent event um, and really delved into the history of Land Day and and the Nakba um, and the right of return and the issue that that played in these protests. And I think that history is really important to get the full context of why these protests are happening. And actually, Mohammed, on that note, do you want to share a little bit about the history of Land Day for our audience who may not know?
3: Land Day was a day established in 1976 by a political party in Israel composed of Arab citizens of Israel or Palestinians who, are, who live in Israel. Which was intended to protest the confiscation of the continued confiscation of Palestinian land. During that time, six unarmed protesters were executed and shot to death. And so every year since then, Land Day commemorates their executions. Uh, Beyond that, Land Day has also grown in significance uh, because it's come to represent, like every other day of uh, rage and protests in Palestine, the continued theft of land by the Israeli government from Palestinian peoples, beginning in 1948 with the declaration of the State of Israel and the expulsion of hundreds of thousands of Palestinians. In order to properly consider these events, you need to look at the history of Israeli oppression of Palestinians, and it needs to be factored in every time. More importantly, Mm -hmm. um, when these events are covered, um, at no point are the Palestinian grievances addressed. Mm -hmm. Um, When it comes to Gaza, we're talking about a a strip of land that is overpopulated um, mostly by Palestinian refugees who were expelled from what is today Israel in 1948, uh, with five points of entry and exit all four of them controlled by Israel and one of them controlled by Egypt.
2: I think another um, thing that's worth noting for our listeners who, um, American listeners who don't have a personal connection to Palestine, sometimes this can feel far, this issue can feel far away and in reality America has a huge role in allowing the Israeli occupation to continue and we have a responsibility therefore to be vocal about it and that's why it can be discouraging when this happened on Friday, you know not to see a lot of you know not to see widespread anger over it or not to see a lot of um, commentary on in the media and on so- social media about the role that American public opinion plays in this because American public opinion is one of the main pillars of the Israeli occupation, and without it, it probably couldn 't continue and um, the best example this week is that the U.S. advisor to the U.N., Walter Miller, this week blocked the U.N. resolution calling for an investigation into the death of of 18 unarmed Palestinians, and he used words that are familiar to us in this discussion. He called demonstrators bad actors who were, quote, using the protests as a cover to incite violence, and this all plays into this narrative that Hamas is behind all of these demonstrations, and that they're um, responsible for the demonstration and that makes and that gives an image to the Western media consumer or the western reader that this is um, not that this is a violent protest when in fact it was unarmed civilians demonstrating for their right to their land that was stolen from them by the state of israel and I, and I think in that
1: regard it's important to know that it looks very much like the American administration is parroting exactly what the Israeli government has been saying about these protests, which is like you're saying that you know these protests are just being used as a cover for, for terrorists, for Hamas members to infiltrate Gaza. Um, and actually during the protests, the IDF released a video showing what looked like three men who carrying rifles who were trying to cut a hole in the fence or somehow climb through the border fence. Um, and then they were killed with tank fire. And the Israeli government said, "Well, here's proof that you know this was this was an entirely cover for Hamas to to gain an opportunity to to infiltrate Israel." But actually, that video was shot in a part of the northern Gaza Strip, which was well outside where the demonstrations were being were being held. So it was an entirely separate event. Yet the Israeli army conflated the two, mm-hmm. conflated uh, peaceful protest with. This boogeyman of, of, of terrorism, mm-hmm. um, and that's a line that that the Trump administration also seems to be to be running, um, and and is a line that the you know um, Trump administration has been running for its entire yeah existence.
2: And it's worth noting also that the May fifteenth is the day that the Great March of Return is set to end, which coincides with when the move of the embassy to Jerusalem is set to happen, and so. A lot of this is this is happening in the context of Trump's announcement of the move of the um, American embassy in Israel to Jerusalem.
3: And um, just a point on on the, the Israeli government and the IDF and the American government's response to the protests, even when um, they address exactly the peaceful protests and not uh, the, the that boogeyman that Andrew spoke about, uh, it just seems absolutely absurd. They uh, they they claim that uh, these non-violent protesters throwing rocks and and hurl, and, and rolling tires uh, is justification for their murder and right. them being shot at. That is just fundamentally uh, a, a profound imbalance of how this is, how this, yeah. this 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 latest event is presented and conceived of and what I'm having a hard time with and what I think a lot of Palestinians always have a hard time with is how do people rationalize this away Um, and I think the only way that people rationalize this away is by truly not perceiving Palestinians as human beings who are worthy of who who are deserving not only of security and peace and justice like everyone else uh, but who who are deserving also of uh, their land, the land off of which they hope to live and survive.
2: Yeah, and it's a flagrant violation of international law that none of there's no reasonable argument for these soldiers having been had their lives threatened which would have been the only justification for legal justification for their attacks and there it's clear from the evidence that that was never the case and it should be a really clear-cut um, there should be a clear-cut condemnation of um, their decision to shoot at protesters.
0: I, I think one thing that's important to note is that within Israel, there actually has been quite a few protests recently among the Israeli population against um, the excessive use of force by the IDF against the protesters. And there was actually um, several members of the Knesset as well spoke out against the use of force. Um, I know the Arab parties in the Knesset, the Joint List, um, and then the left-wing party, Moretz, both spoke out against it. Um, and so it is important to note that there's some... Um, dissension among Israel about this, and there's a lot of the Israeli population has been speaking out against what they feel is, once again, a very flagrant and excessive use of force by the IDF against Palestinians. Do you feel
2: like this is a new wave and dissent um, from within the Israeli state? Is it? Do you think it's the same people who have always opposed the occupation, um, or do you feel like it's a new, a stronger demonstration of... Um,
0: dissent against Netanyahu and against the
2: occupation?
0: I think within the Knesset, it's kind of the same people that always um, are the ones who are speaking out against Netanyahu. At least the, the Arab members of the Knessets are, Knesset are usually very vocal in voicing their opposition. Um, but among the population, it seems recently like at least there's been more coverage in the U.S. of some of the protests that have been um, happening within Israel against Netanyahu. Um, and I'm not really sure if that coincides with a general increase in opposition against him. I think he's become increasingly unpopular over recent years. So yeah, I'm not exactly sure, but it, there has been a lot more coverage of it at least in the in the US media.
3: And I, th- I think what that speaks to more than anything else is the extent to which now is the appropriate time to begin uh, actively and vocally criticizing Israel because it's mm-hmm. clear that um, not all—it seems facile to say—but not all accusations or not all criticism of Israel's anti-Semitism. To be fair, um, anti-Semites do sometimes appropriate uh, the pro-Palestine line and fix it in the in their weird, in their in their unjust and untrue conspiracy theories. They'll say, "Look at how Israel gets away with everything. It is clearly just a, a massive conspiracy." Um, that's nonsense, and we reject that line. We're not. We're but we still think that it's possible to um, a- actively and forcefully and justly criticize the Israeli government and the Israeli state mm-hmm. for its decades-long repression and oppression of Palestinians.
2: Mm-hmm. And the most obvious manifestation of that demand would be for a BDS movement. There are, there have been calls, um, of course, for a, a long time from the Palestinian community in the U.S. Um, to, uh, for a BDS movement against Israel, similar to the one that... We saw against South Africa during the apartheid. And then, or was it last year that the U.S. government actually considered a law that would have criminalized any involvement in a BDS movement, which was really scary for a lot of activists who work on Palestine in the U.S. And that never went anywhere, fortunately, but... Um, there has there have been constant fear and intimidation tactics used against Palestinian activists in the U.S. who have called for this, and it's just interesting and sad to note that. And during the apartheid, that was um, a widely accepted strategy for dissent and for condemnation of a government's um, crimes against um, crimes against its people and the ethnic cleansing of Palestinian people from. Their land and their territory, and the ongoing unjust occupation, and that now it's become it's it's considered in the U.S. a really radical tactic that's that's unpopular, and it's kind of it's too bad that we don't see that as a reasonable strategy for um, for condemning Israel.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I think it just speaks to what you guys were talking about earlier, which is just how closely U.S. government stance on Israel um, and journalism has so closely mirrored Israel's stance, and that's been true since 1948, basically, soon after, um, when the U.S. kind of flip-flopped on its stance for allowing the refugees the right to return back to their homes in Israel. I think it just doesn't... the BDS movements just don't get any positive coverage in U.S. media, and I think that really... Reflects how it's covered in Israel as well. Right.
2: Fortunately, there was. I did see there was a Washington Post op-ed
0: this week calling for
2: BDS, and so that was maybe the one of the only calls for BDS that I saw from a mainstream news source this week.
1: Yeah, and I I think one of the other big problems that the BDS movement faces is is building on what Mohammed was talking about earlier is this charge of anti-Semitism. Um, The Israeli government has been particularly vocal in branding anyone who is engaged or supports the BDS movement as as an anti-Semite and as if they're calling for the destruction of Israel or something. Um, And this is patently false. Uh, That's not one of the BDS campaign's objectives. Um, The BDS movement is designed to end the occupation of of the Palestinian territories and human rights abuses against Palestinians And in that sense it's a very limited political motive, certainly not an anti-Semitic one. And it's just frustrating, I think many BDS supporters get really frustrated because it's very hard to ever advocate for a cause when whenever you open your mouth you're accused of being an an anti-Semite. I don't think there's an easy answer to that other than showing to the public that what exact aims of this movement are? Mm-hmm. Um, how it's a, a rational and completely, you know, justified way to to increase pressure on a, on a, mm-hmm. on the Israeli government.
0: Mm-hmm. I think it also just speaks to kind of the U.S. population's general lack of knowledge about the occupation and about the U.S. roles in the occupation, like you were talking about earlier. I mean, there's just not a lot of awareness among the general U.S. population about what exactly has happened in Israel and what the occupation even means Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's a big reason that BDS movements have a hard time gaining traction as well on campuses because most of the students who are involved in them are Arab American students or students who um, have more knowledge than the average population on what's going on but among the general student populace they have a really hard time gaining supporters because most American students don't know and so then they don't care Um, and I think that's something that I mean, we just need to talk about the occupation in the U.S. a lot more and exactly what that means. Absolutely, especially
2: when we have our elected representatives play such a huge role in in maintaining it. And we can't, as as distant as some people may feel from this issue, we have a responsibility to be informed about it.
0: Yeah. So the other piece of news that's come out of Israel this week is that on Monday, um, Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu had announced that He had a new policy regarding um, African migrants and refugees within the country, that he'd reached that deal with the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. But then within 24 hours, he flip-flopped on that deal and came out saying that he was actually canceling the deal. Um, And I think in large part, the reason he canceled it is because he had been negotiating with the UN um, in relative privacy, and a lot of members of his own party weren't aware of the fact that he was negotiating on this deal um, about the migrants And so when he announced this deal, a lot of his own party members were really angry and frustrated with him that they'd been kept in the dark about this. Um, And so he faced pretty immediate political backlash from that. Um, And so then within 24 hours, he canceled the deal. And this would have affected about 40,000 African migrants who are living in Israel. And Israel doesn't really have a well-defined policy on asylum seekers and refugees and migrants. And this deal was kind of a process in trying to get a... More more clarity around that issue and what the status of these people are and whether they can be uh, whether they can remain in Israel. But ironically, because he had made this deal with the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, even though he's now canceled it, they're all actually declared refugees, and so now they're allowed to stay in Israel regardless of the fact that he canceled the deal.
2: And of course, this plays into um, Israel's anxiety about its demographic balance and the fear that somehow even this mi- this relatively minor a relatively small population of African migrants would upset the demographic balance of Israel.
0: Yeah, Israel has about nine million people, and there was only forty. Right now, there's recorded as forty thousand um, African migrants who are living in Israel. So it's a really small number.
1: And only seventeen thousand of those were going to be able to stay under the deal anyway. So yeah, yeah so it's a minuscule amount, really.
0: Yeah, but yeah, like I said, the ones who then would have been able um, to stay under the deal. Now that they're declared refugees, they can no longer be deported under international refugee law. So weirdly enough, it actually still kind of has somewhat of a good conclusion for at least that, that portion of the migrants who are living there. But it still shows how political this whole situation mm-hmm. is um, and how willing Netanyahu is to change his mind based on the um, political backlash that he receives.
1: And this decision, well, the rejection of the deal by Netanyahu received pretty strong criticism from a lot of um, Israeli citizens, uh, just as the um, Israeli army's re- uh, reaction to the land Day protest did as well. Um, and when you combine uh, this kind of backlash against Netanyahu with the, the growing um, corruption investigation against him, there is kind of some sense, I think, in Israel that Netanyahu might be on somewhat thin ice politically at the moment, uh, but then again, he's shown himself over, um, over his long tenure as Prime Minister that he's a very um, resilient politician and very hard to displace, so I guess we'll still have to, we'll have to wait and see whether this actually has any long-term repercussions on, on him as a leader, um, but it is interesting that these three separate kind of protest um, movements against him are kind of coalescing mm-hmm. at, the, at the same time.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's podcast of the Middle East Weekly, a podcast of the Journal for Middle Eastern Politics and Policy. Please stay tuned for our next episode in two weeks, and in the meantime, be sure to follow the news on JMEP's website at jmep.hkspublications.org and on Facebook and Twitter.